right now the ushers are gonna, they're gonna receive the offering. And uh, that's, you know, I always say this is an extension of worship, especially for me. Uh, I like money. <laughs> and uh, I live in a culture that, that idolizes money. And sometimes um, just the process of giving, just being reminded of giving is something that addresses that idolatry in my own heart. So uh, for me, the offering is always kind of an extended part of worship. And so uh, if there's just something in your own heart, maybe as the buckets are being passed, uh, I just encourage you to kind of like sort that out with the Lord as we're doing this. Um, while the ushers are passing the offering, I got a couple of announcements. One is, one is this, and I, you know, I love, I, I just told someone this last week, I love Thanksgiving. Uh, Thanksgiving for me and my family has always been a huge thing. Uh, I was born around Thanksgiving. My parents uh, have fond memories of those first Thanksgivings with me, and, and, uh, and it's my dad's favorite holiday. And so like this time of year, I start to get really excited about the holidays uh, and, and it just, it, it dawns on me every year when we get to this time, as excited as I am, it's also for many of us, there's the reminder of people that aren't with us for the holidays, um, people that we've lost, uh, people that are close to us. Um, and so in some ways, like the holidays can be this really joyful time, but then it can also be a time of just like real awareness of those that are no longer with us. And uh, we have a ministry that goes on year round here called Grief Share that just helps people walk through and navigate loss. But every year at the holidays, there's like a two or three hour seminar they do. And it's actually next Saturday on the 6th. Um, there's a seminar that's just called Surviving the Holidays. And it's just specifically for those folks that are struggling with grief coming into this season. And so if that's you, if you're somebody that, you know, you, you're going into this holiday season and there's just kind of a heaviness because of someone that, close to you that you've lost, um, I just recommend that course to you. It's just literally a couple of hours here on a Saturday. Um, just kind of helps frame some things to help you navigate that, this season really well. So I just want to let you know about that. If you have any questions, there's answers on our website and also at the info center out in the commons out there. And you can, uh, you can get those questions answered. The other thing that I want to mention, and this is uh, obviously really fun, is today's our Harvest Festival for uh, families and kids. Last year was kind of our first experiment with this, and it was really, really great. And uh, this year we've got some music, and we've got like candy, and there's all sorts of fun stuff for kids. And, and, uh, and it's going to be a great time today starting at 4 o'clock. Let me just tell you this. This is kind of the other thing with this whole deal. This week I got to hear the story of somebody who just said, yeah, like we invited our neighbors last year to the Harvest Festival, and now they started coming to church. And, uh, and it's because of something like this. They just like, they, they got introduced to our church through something sort of low impact and crazy like our Harvest Festival. So if you have got a neighbor, if you've got friends, if you've got people that they don't know what to do this afternoon, they're kind of bored and the NFL's boring or whatever it is, then, uh, then you, can, uh, you can invite them to this. Like load their kids up on sugar, send them home. You don't have to go home with them. And so that's always the great news about these things, especially for me. Like I don't have to take sugar-induced kids home after an event like this. But, uh, but today's going to be just a really great time together. There's tents and all sorts of stuff out there that they're setting up that is going to be really fun. So I just encourage you to come back for that this afternoon. Um, this, this morning, we're in our third week in the study in uh, Ecclesiastes. And so if you have a Bible, I want you to open up to chapter four of the book of Ecclesiastes. It's in your Old Testament. If you open up right to the middle, you'll kind of find Psalms and Proverbs. You make a right-hand turn and, uh, and keep moving a couple of more books and you'll come into the, the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is a really unusual book and it offers a really unusual take on life. Uh, it offers an unusual sort of wisdom. Um, one of the things I remind myself of whenever I read Ecclesiastes is that this is a book that is for everyone who played by the rules. Everyone who played by the rules and the rules didn't pan out. That's what Ecclesiastes is for. Uh, Ecclesiastes is for everyone who ever worked hard to get someplace, only to wake up and realize that it was the journey that was important, not the destination. 
That's what Ecclesiastes is for. It's to help us realize those sorts of things. Ecclesiastes is for anyone who has ever had joy and lost it, or had peace and misplaced it, or had purpose and meaning and lost that sense of purpose and meaning, which I think in this particular season, in the season that we've all been navigating as human beings living on this planet during this time period of of our history, of the world history, that, that means that this book is for us because I think for most of us, this has been a season where we've struggled to find joy, We've struggled to retain peace. And truly, I think a lot of people have stopped and asked questions about meaning and purpose and why in the world are we here? So uh, Ecclesiastes is really for us. It's for real people who are living very real lives in times like the times that we're living in. So just a quick recap. If you haven't been with us through this series, I'm just going to talk about the last couple of weeks. Um, In week number one, we looked at chapters one and two. And in chapters one and two, the writer, the teacher of Ecclesiastes put all of the stuff of life into perspective. Uh, The houses, the cars, the jobs, the the degrees, uh, all of the retirement savings, all of the things that, the things that we work on, the things that we accumulate. He put all the stuff of life in perspective by using the word havel. Havel has been translated meaningless in the English language, but we talked about the idea that it's actually probably more uh, beneficial to understand it as vapor or mist, that, that all of these things that he describes, the houses, the cars, the gardens, all the different things that we put our hands to, it's just a vapor. It's real, it's there, but there's not really substance. We can't really take hold of it. And so what he presents to us and what we talked about in week number one is this idea that if we're trying to find meaning or if we're trying to find peace or we're trying to reclaim our joy, we're not gonna find it in the vapor. We can't really take hold of it. That's real, it's there, but that's not where we find those things. So he put that in perspective. And then last week, we looked, at, uh, we looked at chapter three, and the writer put time in perspective. And, and one of the things we talked about towards the end of the message last week is how, for many of us, we get stuck in our past, or we get frozen worrying about our future. And the writer of Ecclesiastes puts all of time in perspective, and he presented to us this idea of ha-olam, this idea of eternity that's being placed in our hearts, that in the middle of a, a universe that is defined by time, there is also this thing called eternity, another realm that we can experience and enter into. And he shows us how we can be present in ha-olam. So now we, we're going to move on to chapter four. And, uh, and of course, there's another word that we're going to look at, some other interesting language that's used. And there's another example of wisdom that is beyond the normal wisdom. So first it was stuff, then it was time. And today we're going to move to our posture. How do we move through our days? What's the posture that you and I carry as we move through our days? So Ecclesiastes chapter four, I'm going to do as we've done every week so far, and we'll keep doing. Uh, I'm going to read the passage, and then we're going to just unpack it and talk about some significant things that are in here. So Ecclesiastes chapter four, beginning in verse one, it says this. By the way, get ready for a load of encouragement. Here it comes. Again, I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors and they have no comforter. And I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive. Remember, I said this was gonna be encouraging. But better than both is the one who has never been born, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. 
And I saw that all toil and all achievement spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. Some of you have said that at work a few times, right? I want to spend our time today looking at the two verses that are in the middle, verses five and six of this, because packed in the middle of this sort of like, wow, life is tough and there's oppression and there's work and it's all vapor. In the middle of this, there's this little thing that gets slipped into verses five and six that I think is incredibly powerful and important for us as it relates to the posture that we move through life. I think this is the emphasis of what the teacher is getting at here. So verses five and six, let me read it again for you. It says this, fools fold their hands and ruin themselves, better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Now, we've seen something in this, in this series so far that there are certain words that the writer uses, words that get repeated, words that get emphasized. And when we hone in on those words, when we focus on those things, that seems to unlock some wisdom that we don't normally have. It shows us some things that we don't normally see. So when you look at this, when you look at these two particular verses, you'll notice that there is one word that the, that the teacher, the author, uses here, and it's the word hands. Hands. So I want to just take a moment and I want to talk about this word hands for just a second. Now, um, in your English translation, when you look at what we just read, basically there's just one word that gets translated. It's the word hands. We have hands, hands, and hands. We have a handful or hands. It's kind of the same iteration of the word. But when you look in the Hebrew language, in the original language in which this was written, there are actually three different Hebrew words for our English word hands that are used in these two verses. And if you, if you spend much time here, if you've been around B4 very long, you know that when we see something like that, uh, if you know me, I just basically turn into a three-year-old and I ask one question and that's why, right? Why? Why would he use three different words to describe one particular thing? Three different words must mean that there's a deeper meaning inside of this. So to answer this, I want to explain this. And what I'm going to do, I'm going to talk about the last usage of the word hands. I'm going to talk about the first usage of the word hands. And then I'm going to talk about the middle usage of the word hands that he has here. So we have this phrase, better one hand with tranquility than two handfuls with chasing after the wind. This two handfuls is the Hebrew word kofen. Say that with me. Just say kofen. Kofen. So kofen, that literally means cupping your hands or making a cup. It's this posture right here. So do me a favor. Just take your hands real quickly. Audience participation day today, by the way. Uh, take your hands and put them together like this and just hold them there for a second. This is what the Hebrew word kofen means. So he says, basically, kofen is not the ideal, this cupping of the hands, so the idea behind this gesture, the reason this word is so powerful is that this captures this sense of grasping or, 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 or trying to get all that you could possibly get. It's trying to hold on to all that I can hold on to. It's trying to get everything that I could possibly get. Behind this gesture is this sense that you can't get enough. 
right? It's like trying to hold everything in. Like I'm trying to, trying to put my hands in such a way that I can hold the maximum amount of stuff in my hands, whatever it is. We know this feeling. By the way, in the Hebrew uh, language, in the Hebrew culture, and also we see this in the New Testament, the idea of hands is representative of how you're living your life. If you put your hand to something, it's talking about your energies, your life. And so when the writer says this, he's talking about a life that is lived like this. It's this grasping. And we know this grasping. We know what it's like to toil. We know what it's like to get caught up in the rat race. We know the go, go, go of living in this posture, the climbing of the ladder, the stress. We know this. This, this right here is the perfect posture. If you want to throw some elbows at a few people around you, don't do it now because I don't want you to hurt your neighbor, but it's the perfect posture to kind of elbow your way through life, trying to get everything that you could possibly get. The word kofan, if you imagine a hiker who is without water coming across a fresh stream, there would be this desperation, right, where they cup their hands and they're trying to get as much water to their mouth as they possibly can. That is the word kofan. We know kofan. We know what it's like to grasp and to hold on. That's the last word that he uses, the first word that he uses is a different word. It's the Hebrew word yod. So say that with me. Say yod. Yod. Yod looks like this. So just take your fingers together and just kind of fold them for me. Uh, if you have a, maybe a little bit of a belly like mine, you can kind of rest them there if you want to, right? So this is this gesture, yod. Yod. Now there is a wisdom tradition around the word yod. The folding of the hands, it's a, it's, a, it's a euphemism, it's an illustration in wisdom literature. The folding of the hands is usually a reference to what? Laziness, right? It's, it's a reference to sloth. In some translations, the sluggard is the word that's used for the person that folds their hands. Let me give you an example. Um, Proverbs chapter 24 says this, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little yod, to rest and poverty will come on you like a thief and scarcity like an armed man. A little folding of the hands. Now here's what's interesting about the word yod. Um, even though it means laziness, it's actually associated with or connected to power. It's connected to meaning. It's connected to direction. It's connected to a sense of purpose. And so it carries this meaning with it. So yod, when the, when the Hebrew word yod is being used in the Bible, it's basically like this. It's saying, God gave me a life. God gave me strength. God gave me creativity. God gave me intelligence. God gave me passions. God gave me skills. God gave me time. God gave me space. God put me on the planet in a particular area, in a particular time, for a particular reason. And the word yod means I chose with all of that to just check out. I folded my hands, I disengaged. It's like at this epic level of the soul, you just say, you know what? I'm done. I'm done. I know I got all these gifts. I know I got all, these, all these abilities. I know all these things are here. I realize you put me in the middle of this big, beautiful, colorful world. I know there's problems to be solved. I know there's adventures to be taken, but I'm done. I choose to check out. I will yod. I will fold my hands. So, 
we have Kofan, we have this desperation, we have this grasping for everything, the work, work, work. I've got to get all that I can possibly get. I have to attain everything I could possibly attain. And then on the other spectrum, we have the folding of the hands. We have this, I'm just done. I'm just checking out. I just want to escape all of the madness. In between these two, the teacher gives us a third word. And see, we tend to think either or. We tend to think black or white. It's either, like we look at our life and say, either we're running the rat race and we're cupping our hands and trying to grasp everything, or we're folding our hands. We're, we're just checking out. It's like one or the other. And yet what he presents to us is a third option. And this is an option for how you and I can move through our days. It isn't just, I desperately join the rat race or I check out. It isn't just cash in your chips or run like a chicken with your head cut off. There's something else. In between engaging and disengaging, there's this better one handful with tranquility. So the word here is different than yod. It's different than kofan. Here the Hebrew word is the word kaf. So say kaf with me. Beautiful. Kaf is this, one singular open hand. So just put your hand out in front of you just for a moment, just like this, and just look at your hand for just a second. This is the Hebrew word kaf. It's better to live life like this, the writer says. So an open palm, when you hold your palm open like this, this means that you can hold on to certain things loosely, right? You're not grasping at things. You're just holding on to them loosely. This is the perfect posture for giving things away. It's also the perfect posture for receiving things. There's this neutrality to this. It's still a hand. It still has to do with your power. It still has to do with your direction. It still has to do with the posture that you're moving through your days, right? But it's just different than the other two. There's something relaxed about this. There's something that's easy about this. This is a particular kind of posture that he's encouraging us towards. It is the posture of tranquility. It means rest. It means calm. It means peace. And so the writer says, it's better to be like this in your life. Better to be like this than grasping in desperation or folding your hands and giving up. He says there's this other way to live. So three different postures, three different ways to live, three different ways to move and be a person in this world. Uh, I grew up in a really peculiar place. I grew up on the west um, side of Phoenix, Arizona. And, uh, and there's this phenomenon that occurs every single year in Phoenix. As the temperature in Phoenix lowers, there is this great migration from the north that takes place. And every human being, I think, in the northern hemisphere over the age of 65 descends on the city of Phoenix. It was the craziest thing growing up. And I'm not exaggerating. It just feels like everybody 
descends on Phoenix. And so um, suddenly the traffic gets snarled and people drive really slow and the buffet lines get really long. All those things change, you know, the, the golf courses are full, like all that stuff happens, right? And, uh, and, and it's just this amazing dynamic that takes place. And some genius years ago decided that on the western edge, what used to be the western edge of Phoenix, they would build this planned community, this master planned community, this development where we could put all of these people who migrated once a year to our city and they could all live there happily together. And it's called Sun. City. Sun City, Arizona. Uh, one of my favorite features of Sun City is that golf carts are legal forms of transportation in Sun City. So like you could be driving an F-250 and pull up at a light and there's a guy in a like, you know, eight foot golf cart parked next to you or at, at the light. It's just the craziest thing. So, um, so Sun City is this really, really interesting, interesting place for me. And I grew up adjacent to it. So I have this familiarity. In fact, I, there's, a, there's a sign in Sun City that I find really ironic. I just want to show it to you. Um, there's this beautiful reminder that it's the original fun city. <laughs> Sun City, the original fun city. Now, if you've ever um, spent time around Sun City, you might know the irony of this. Uh, I got a job when I was like 16, 17 years old. And on Mother's Day, I would deliver flowers for the florist that was in Sun City. And there was me and a bunch of other people about my age, and we would just f frantically deliver flowers Friday, Saturday, and Sunday of Mother's Day. And I remember going to these houses where these women lived, and their children were far away in other cities. And I would knock on their door, and they would come and they would reluctantly open and they would receive these flowers. And I can just tell you, after a couple years of doing this, after house, after house, after house, my exposure to Fun City revealed that it is anything but fun. One of the saddest things I've ever done is deliver flowers to those moms on Mother's Day. One, one year I was asked uh, to do a memorial service for an individual who passed away in Fun City. He was a physician. He had lived in eastern Colorado. He had delivered nearly every single child in Greeley, Colorado for around 35 or 40 years. When he was done with his practice, he sold everything, moved to Fun City. And I'll never forget the, the strangeness of standing in a mausoleum with two or three people as we laid him to rest and there was no one from the life that he had previously lived there to celebrate him. He'd completely checked out. He had folded his hands, folded his hands. Just living in that place, realizing how bored people were, how lonely they were. See, we, we know we can pick it up in ourselves and we can pick it up in others when we have folded our hands and given up. And then yet at the other end of the spectrum is this other thing, the, the person that's working endlessly. They're working themselves to the bone. They're ignoring those things that are important in their life, all in hopes that someday they can live in fun city. They're cupping their hands with madness so that someday they can fold their hands. And the writer of Ecclesiastes says both of those are madness. You can work and you can save and you get all this stuff, but what are you doing? 
What are you grasping at with all of those things? So there's checked out, and then there is this compulsive, tethered to the machine of stress, 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 this busy, 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 things are crazy, this thing that, that we've just given ourselves to, this American dream. We grasp and grasp and grasp. And the invitation from the teacher is this. You don't have to live that way. You don't have to be desperate and you don't have to check out. There's a different way to live. Some strive and chase and others fold their hands. Better is one hand with tranquility. There's a different way to move through your life. Better one hand with peace. How many of us, when we hear that, when we see that posture, there's this thing that's going on deeper inside of us that says, yes, I want that. I don't want to live in those extremes. I want that. I want, I want to move through my days with this sense of peace. It's interesting. If you turn over to John chapter 14, I want to offer a couple of insights from the life of Jesus for just a moment because what does one-handed tranquility look like? Where does that actually come from? How do we experience that? How do we move through our days and be those kinds of people? See, it's one thing for someone to say, well, this is really bad and and this is really no good at all, but how do you actually live with this one-handed tranquility? Where does it come from? And so we fast forward to the New Testament and Jesus sort of directs our path in this way. If you look at John chapter 14, there's this really interesting statement that Jesus makes to his followers in verse 27. He says, peace I leave you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. There's this really significant emphasis on the part of Jesus to focus on peace. What does Jesus give us? Peace, right? One handed tranquility. Now, we've, we've explained this before, and I, I know I've talked about this, that when a Jewish rabbi like Jesus uses the word peace, it's the Hebrew word shalom. It's this ancient teaching about all-encompassing wholeness. Jesus wants to save us, wants to heal us in the largest sense of the word. In our present circumstances, your entire life, he wants you to have peace. He wants you to become the kind of person who lives with one-handed tranquility. And let me just say this. If you become that kind of person, you will be swimming upstream. It will be a counter-cultural enterprise. Why? Because in our world, we only know two things. We either know folding of the hands or cupping of the hands. We don't really have many examples of this, just this one-handed tranquility. But to be this person, you're going to have to actually confront so many of the things that drive this behavior or result in this behavior. We're going to have to confront the things in our culture, the, the idolatries that we bow down to, the way that we, the way that we live, the way that we organize our time, the way that we abuse ourselves the paces and the rhythms, the habits that are really destructive. We have to confront those things. So when we talk about this, we have to begin with the conversation of saying, there's an awareness that we have that our culture isn't getting this right. Sun City is not fun city. We need to call out some of the impulses and addictions to work that our culture considers normal. Jesus says, I've, I've come because I want to open your eyes to this. I want to show you that there's a different way to live in the middle of all of this. So how do we enter into that? 
There's a really powerful moment. Remember, Jesus is always inviting us to follow his pathway. He's always saying, here's my experience. Now follow me and my experience. Follow me and what I do. Matthew chapter three, there's this really interesting moment that it defines the life of Jesus. Um, He's baptized. John the baptizer has come preaching about the one that's to come and, and Jesus is about to go into the wilderness and there's this moment in Matthew chapter three where he baptizes Jesus and there's this powerful moment. We read this in verse 16. It says, as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water and at that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him and a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love With him, I am well pleased. Now, let me just draw your attention to something at this point in Matthew chapter three. Um, Has Jesus drawn any large crowds with his teaching yet? No. Has Jesus healed anybody yet? No. Has he had a really effective Q&A time with the Pharisees yet? No. Has Jesus hosted or spoke at a major conference that was uh, played all over the world? No. Has Jesus written a book yet that's been a bestseller on the New York Times bestseller list? No. He hasn't done any of this, right? As far as we know, Jesus has done nothing at this point. He, he's, he's gone to school and some things like that. He's learned how to build a table with his, with his you know, stepdad. That, that's it, right? At this point in the story, there's nothing of significance. And here's why this is important. His story opens up with him receiving a blessing. And a blessing is a validation. It's love, it's acceptance, it's confirmation. And the story starts with that. His public ministry begins there. God is not holding back. His father isn't holding back until he proves himself, right? He's not saying like, "Ah, I'm gonna wait and see how he does and then maybe I'll say, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. He doesn't wait to see if he does things the right way. He just says, this is my son and I love him and I'm proud of him, even though he hasn't done anything yet. He's loved, he's accepted, he's validated, he's affirmed before he does anything which means that everything else that Jesus does, everything else that we read about, it comes out of this place of knowing that he's validated. It comes out of a place of knowing that he's loved, knowing that he's accepted, knowing that he's affirmed by his heavenly father. Everything else comes out of that. He doesn't work in order to achieve affirmation. He's not striving to earn God's love. It is his fundamental place of origin. Before he does anything, he knows I am completely loved. Are you with me so far? How many of us strive and work and labor trying to earn the blessing, whatever that blessing is? Or how many of us in the pain of not getting what we thought we deserved have folded our hands? See, what we find with Jesus is this calm, this tranquility that comes when you receive this blessing, when you understand where you stand before you ever do anything. In fact, notice how Jesus talks about this in in, in light of, talks about his life in light of this. Um, Does Jesus say, do you ever hear Jesus say, I'm just here trying to make the father happy. Like, I just don't want to make God angry. Do you ever hear him say that? Never, right? You never hear Jesus say, well, I'm here because you people didn't do your jobs and I've got to pick up the slack. 
You never hear Jesus say that either, right? In fact, at one point in John chapter 5, Jesus basically says this. He says, God gave me some things to do and I'm doing them. That's kind of it, right? Like God didn't ask me to do that. He didn't ask me to do that. He didn't ask me to do that. God asked me to do this. And I'm just doing the things that God asked me to do. And do you ever with Jesus hear a deep sense of like latent guilt? Do you ever hear him talking about the shame? Do you ever get a sense of Jesus that he's striving, that he's grasping? Do you ever sense that Jesus is stressed? Do you ever sense that Jesus is lazy? Is Jesus ever obsessed with staying in cell phone coverage? (laughs) I got to have access to my email. What am I going to do if I can't check my email? Nope. There's one-handed tranquility. So you have a life, you have energy, you have a body, you occupy space and time, you have a will, you have intentions, you have passions, you have gifts, you have creativity, you have certain things that set you alive, you have other things that quench your spirit. And what we struggle with is what do we do with all that I am with my life? What do I do with all of this stuff and all the time and the fact that I've been placed here? What do I do? Some of us were so guilt-ridden and shame-driven that we work and we take all those things and say, I've got to leverage that stuff. I've got to do something with it like I've been given this life. And then others of us were so intimidated by it that we just fold our hands. And then there's this place. I love this. It's like Jesus says, I have a few things to do in the world and I'm doing them. I got a few things to do in the world and I'm doing them. It is tranquil. It is peaceful. It costs something. It takes energy. But in the larger perspective, there is this sense of peace about him. So I want to close with this. Do me a favor. Right now, um, I just want you to fold your hands for me. Just put your hands together and I want you to look at, look at them. Don't look at me. You can do this if you're watching online at home. Do it there too. Um, just look at your hands. And maybe you were burned. Or maybe you've been disappointed. Maybe you jumped into something and it didn't turn out like you planned. And maybe there's something inside of you at some point that you decided with your heart and your life that you were going to just do this. You just said, I'm done. Maybe that was part of surviving for you. You just said, I'm done. I'm folding my hands. Maybe somebody told you you don't have what it takes, whatever it is. Maybe somebody gave you a a script that you followed and it's been bankrupt of purpose and meaning and joy. As you look at your hands, if that's you, what if right now you heard the father say, this is my daughter, this is my son, And I'm pleased with you. I love you. I love you. And I'm pleased with you before you do anything else. How would that change the posture of your life? Now I want you to make the cup. Just do the co-fan for a second. Put your hands together and just look at that for a moment. 
maybe this is you. Maybe you haven't folded your hands. Maybe, maybe you're just striving and you're stressing and you're working. Maybe, maybe you use the word busy way too much with people around you. Maybe you're worried that there's not gonna be enough to go around that, that question that every financial advisor commercial on the planet on Sunday afternoon asks, will there be enough when you retire? Maybe that haunts you. Maybe you're not eating right. Maybe you're not exercising because you don't have time. I want you to look at your hands. Look at the striving. Look at the grass. And if that's you, what if right now you heard the father say, this is my son, this is my daughter, and I love you, and you don't have to prove anything to me. What would that change? This is what Jesus invites us into. Do me one more favor. Just put your hand out. One hand, palm up. Just look at your hand. And would you just take a deep breath with me? Just breathe in. One-handed tranquility. He's pleased with you. He loves you. You are his son, you are his daughter in whom he is well pleased. The gospel over and over and over again has revealed that to us. Amen? Would you stand with me? Before I offer the benediction, let me just mention this. On any given Sunday, there's folks around our auditorium that have orange lanyards on. There's also always folks out at our info center that if you ever wanna talk to somebody about something you wanna pray about, if you ever wanna talk about following Jesus and what it means to take that step of faith, those folks are always available to have that conversation. Um, you can always stop at our info center and talk to one of our pastors out there. Um, there's, there we just wanna always be there for you if you ever have questions about faith or you need someone to pray with. So I wanna mention that to you. But as you go today, as you enter this week, may you be men and women who live with one-handed tranquility. May you be liberated from grasping. May you be liberated from folding your hands. And may you live with a sense of peace and purpose in knowing that you are his son and you are his daughter and he is pleased. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 We love you guys so much. Hey, we've got coffee out there in the commons today. It is back. It's, good. it's better than ever before. So if you want to get a cup of coffee and hang out with your friends, I encourage you to do that. We'll see you guys next Sunday. See you later.